Your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back into our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now, here is the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome, everybody. All right, we're going to be talking about the stages of human development, and we're also going to be talking about those that ignored them. <laughs> i got to tell you something. There is a lot of people in this world who get stuck in their forms of their childhood. Many times it's uh, stages that were not uh, were jumped over or ignored, or maybe it's trauma, maybe it's uh, 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 abuse, maybe it's neglect. Whatever it may be, but a lot of people freeze up into periods of their childhood, and occasionally they act like maybe a six-year-old or a four-year-old or a 12-year-old, whatever that may be. That's because at that time, something happened in that developmental stage that caused them to get stuck emotionally. And basically what happens is when you touch on that, that spot in your communication with that person, they tend to go into defense mechanisms that attribute back to their childhood. And so it's a thing called the inner child, but we won't go there. Um, but it's really important to study human development because a lot of people don't realize that what they're going through oftentimes is either abnormal or it's fairly normal, but they think it's not. You know, change is inevitable. As human beings, we are constantly growing through our lifespans from, from conception to death. And so a lot of people in my field of psychology, they strive to try to figure out and explain how and why people change throughout their life. And while many of these changes are normal and expected, they still compose a lot of challenges that people sometimes need extra assistance to manage. And so the principles of normative development, which in this world, I don't know if there is any normal, but there are fairly uh, uh, standard parts of our development that helps us gauge the spot to spot potential problems and provide a lot of intervention for better outcomes. You know, uh, the people that study development can work with people of all ages to address roadblocks and support growth, although some choose to specialize in a specific age group, uh, you know, like childhood or geriatric or adulthood. You know, the developmental psychology is the branch of psychology that focuses on how people grow and change over the course of their lifetime. And some of the issues that they deal with is like cognitive, your thought-based development during childhood and throughout life, developmental challenges, learning disabilities, emotional development. That's a big one because some people have a high IQ, but they have no EQ. And then there's language acquisition, which when you're very young, that is the best time to learn multiple languages. Also, there's moral reasoning. There's motor skill development, and that's a big thing. There's personality development. And then there's a, this thing called self-awareness and your self-concept of who you are, which forms sometime uh, usually from about nine forward. And then there's this social and cultural influences on our development, and these can all be different based on where you live. And so, you know, there's a lot of time that's spent on these developmental theories. You know, uh, uh, Piaget, his uh, theory of cognitive development was huge in building up uh, first grade, second grade, third grade, kindergarten, you know, all those different grades of what should be taught during those ages. 
And so those ages were where kids would accelerate in their learning instead of sticking a bunch of kids of different ages in a classroom. He suggested you you uh, work with each age group so that they can accelerate quickly and learn much more. And that's how the American uh, 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 base of our schooling was developed. You know, a psychologist working with a child might also want to consider how the child's relationships with, with their parents or their caregivers influences their behavior. And so then that goes to Bowlby, which did the what's called the attachment theory. And they're also interested in looking at how social relationships influence the development of both children and adults. So now we look at Erickson's theory of psychosocial development. And, and, and then there's Vygotsky's theory of social cultural development. And these are all frameworks of looking at human development as we go through time. And there's a whole lot more theories than that. These are the major, major, major ones. You know, when you see somebody that studies development, while the te development tends to follow a, a predictable pattern, there's times when things might go off course. You know, parents often focus on what they're known as developmental milestones and represent abilities that most children tend to display at a certain point of development. And these typically uh, go on to different areas, physical, cognitive, social, emotional, and communication. For example, walking is one of the physical milestones that most children achieve sometime between the age of 9 and 15 months. And if a child is not walking or attempting to walk by 16 to 18 months, parents often consider culting, uh, consulting with their family physician to determine what developmental issue is going on. Sometimes kids are just slower. Some kids don't speak very often until they get older. And it's amazing how sometimes they, they just become fairly mute when they're younger, and then they all of a sudden, boom, they start forming language and words. You know, while all children develop at different rates, when a child fails to meet these milestones by a certain age, there may be a cause, it's, it's a red flag, but being aware of those milestones, parents can seek assistance, healthcare can, uh, professionals can offer interventions, that can help them overcome those delays. And the earlier, the better. And the earlier you recognize, the better. And the earlier you seek help, the better. You know, there's a lot of support uh, that, that you can get, provide individuals at all points of life who may be facing developmental issues. And we see that in our school system all the time. And that's what's so sad about this COVID thing is that the teachers are not getting a good view of the kids uh, in person to get a read on where they are developmentally and they may not be able to assist in catching things because they see a whole flock of kids, a whole classroom, and they're able to kind of see where they are. And that's the other uh, helpful thing that came out of PJ's theories. But, um, you know, we go through phases of life and that's what we really want to begin to look at. Now, in the, in the prenatal area, it, it's of interest to developmental people who study this in psychology who seek to understand how the earliest influences on development can impact later growth uh, during childhood. And, and psychologists may look at how primary reflexes emerge before birth and how fetuses respond to stimulus in the womb and the sensations and perceptions that fetuses are capable of detecting prior to birth. They actually know the sound of their parents' voice. You know, developmental psychologists also look at potential problems like Down syndrome, uh, maternal drug use, inherited diseases that may have an impact also on development. And then in early childhood, and that's from infancy to early childhood, it's a time of a lot of growth and a lot of change. 
And so the, what's looked at is the physical, the cognitive, and the emotional growth that takes place during that critical period. And it's really important to understand in the infancy stage, when a child is prenatal or, or when they're just born in that first year of life, what's really important to understand is their main concern is, am I safe? Am I safe? And can I trust my parents? And what they do is they test through crying and various cries to see how aware their parents are of their needs because they really only have that emotion to show. But it's important for them to get to understand that, can I trust this parent to take care of my needs? Am I safe? And when kids aren't safe in that first year of life, let's say they hear a bunch of parents arguing or they hear violence or they hear shouting or they hear loud noises, that can cause a lot of fear in an infant and it can cause a lot of damage in how they cope with life later on. You know, in middle childhood, there's a physical maturation, uh, increase important on uh, social influences. And, and so, you know, kids begin to make their mark on the world. They form friendships. They gain competency. Uh, they, they continue to build their unique sense of self. And this is just a general view, by the way. This is no particular theory. And then in adolescence, the teen years are often the subject of considerable interest as children experience uh, psychological turmoil and transition that often accompanies the period of development. And so at this age, kids often test limits, uh, explore new identities because they want to try on, you know, they'll take on the influence of a friend and wear their kind of clothing just to see if that'll fit or their kind of music or their particular interests and they borrow it. And then basically they're trying to see if that will integrate into their personality. And so they're testing and they want their individuality. And if you're parenting a kid in adolescence, the good news is, is you need to give them the option to succeed and the option to fail. You don't want to create a rebellion by doing, uh, placing rules on them that give them no choices. You want to see them exercise their values at that stage. And as they move into early adulthood, now it's about forming and maintaining relationships, about taking responsibility, about intimacy, about close friendships, starting a family. And so now they're starting to launch and they may, may at this stage feel alienated and lonely. And that oftentimes can happen. And, and at that stage, that, that, that early stage of adulthood, it's really important to form a sense of confidence and doing hard things that make your life easier and to understand there is purpose to what you're doing. And if you can't do it for yourself, do it for other people so that you can give them something that they need and create value in your life. Now, in middle adulthood, that's kind of like purpose and, and contributing to society. That's kind of the big goal there. And uh, Erickson described that as generativity and stagnation. And those who engage in the world contribute things that will last, last them. They leave a mark on the next generation and a sense of purpose. And those purposes and those things is what carries their life forward after they pass. And, and so, you know, in older adults, they're often viewed as a period of poor health, yet many older adults are capable of remaining active and busy well into their 80s and their 90s. And increased health concerns mark this period of development. Some individuals may expen uh, experience mental declines like dementia, but, you know, elder years is also a time of reflection back on your life. And what's important is the people that manage their integrity through their life 
at the end of their life, they're still attractive. They still draw people into them because people know who they are and they trust them. The people that know, don't manage their integrity have a hard time moving into old age because they often end up in nursing homes by themselves. Nobody's showing up because they did not manage their integrity. That is a big deal. It's a big deal, and you need to keep it in mind early on in life and carry that forward throughout your life. And that means you're wise. That means you do the wise thing, which is what God would want you to do. You know, there's also uh, developmental problems that that present uh, that can happen. You know, it's really important for children to be evaluated. Typically, it involves interviews with parents, caregivers, the child themselves, witnessing behaviors, review of their medical history, and, and a little bit of testing to kind of see where they're at. And there's a lot of availability out there for that. Now, we're going to talk about Jean Piget. He developed cognitive developmental theory based on the idea that children actively construct knowledge as they explore and manipulate the world around them. And there's four stages of Piget's theory of cognitive development. And, and in, it, at the age of the child, they include the sensor motor, the pre-operational, the concrete operational, and the formal operational stages. Now, in the sensomotor stage, that occurs from birth to age two. And that's characterized by the idea that infants think by manipulating the world around them. Then the preoccupational stage occurs from two to seven. And this is characterized by the idea that children use symbols to represent their discoveries. And then in the concrete operational stage, uh, from 7 to 11, it's characterized by the idea that children's reasoning becomes focused and logical. And here's what's interesting. This concrete operational stage, 7 to 11, many of these kids, if they're lazy, form black and white thinking. They don't want to think for themselves. They'd rather learn something and just use that. And so they form black and white thinking when life is gray. And so many people get stuck in that concrete operational stage. Then there's a formal operational stage, and it occurs from 11 to adulthood. And this is basically the idea that children develop the ability to think in abstract ways. So some of the terms that PJ used was deductive reasoning. And so this is when the conclusion cannot be false, uh, given that the premises are true. And then there's this object permanence, and this is a huge thing, understanding typically early infancy is when this is found, that an object still exists even when it disappears from sight or other senses. And so children need to feel that there is a sense of permanence when mom is out of the room or dad is out of the room or the dog is out of the room or a toy is left somewhere. Then there's this transitivity, and that's the idea that an if A is related to B, then B is related to C, then A must be related to C. And so there's a line of thinking. And then there's assimilation. And that's basically absorbing new ideas into an existing cognitive structure. So if you break it down, the sensor motor stage uh, occurs from age, uh, once again, birth to two. And it, it's, it's really children figuring out ways to elicit responses by doing, such as pulling a lever on a music box to hear a sound, placing a block in a bucket, or pulling it back out, throwing an object to see what happens. And between about five to eight months old, the child develops object permanence, which is the understanding that even if something is out of sight, it still exists. For example, a child 
uh, learns that even though his mother leaves the room, she's not ceased to exist. And similarly, a ball does not disappear because a bucket is placed over it. And by the end of that stage, children are able to engage in what Piget termed deferred imitation. This involves the ability to reproduce or repeat a previously witnessed action rather than copying it right away. The child is able to produce a mental representation of it and repeat the behavior later on. Now, that sounds like a lot of gobbledygook, but it's really important in this stage. And by 24 months, infants are able to imitate behaviors after a delay of up to three months. And then this preoccupational stage, that's two to seven, uh, children use symbols to represent words and images and ideas, which is why children in this stage engaged uh, in pretend play. The child's arms might become an airplane or in a wing or they, as they zoom around a room or, or a stick might become a brave knight with a sword or language development and make-believe play. Uh, during this stage, logical thinking is not present, so children cannot rationalize or understand more complex ideas. Children at this stage are very egocentric, meaning they focus on themselves and how actions will impact them rather than others. They're not able to take on perspective of others, and they think that everyone sees and thinks and feels exactly like they do. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a lot of adults like that that got stuck in that phase. Then there's this concrete operational phase, and that's 7 to 11, and, and, and uh, children really demonstrate logic, understanding of conservation principles, the ability to recognize that key properties of a substance do not change even as their physical appearance may be altered. For example, a child who understands the principles of conservation will recognize that identical quantities of liquid will remain the same despite the size of the container in which they're poured. Children who do not yet grasp conservation and logical thinking will believe that the taller or larger glass must contain more liquid. All right, we're going to talk about the formal operational stage here real quick, and that's from 11 to adulthood, and that's characterized by the idea that children develop the ability to think in abstract ways. And so that uh, is problem-solving, it's hypothesis, it's reasoning their way through to solutions. Huge. And children can think of abstract concepts and have the ability to combine various ideas to create new ones. Normal. This is all normal. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. Listen for Transformation for Success with Dr. Barbara Young. Her show topics cover creating lasting transformation in challenging environments and how creating change can have an impact on the success of individuals from a mind, body, 
and spirit perspective. It's going to be inspiring and uplifting each week. So tune in on Tuesdays at 12 noon Pacific time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. And also listen on the Voice America Business and Influencers channels. Transformation takes one step at a time. It's time. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. All right, we're talking about the stages of development in life and those who miss them <laughs> or ignore them or just live in them. You know, attaching to infants is, is, is important. Attachment, and, and this was developed by John Bowlby. Mary Ainsworth also, they were researchers who really advanced the theory of attachment as related to human development. And attachment is really important in infants because it's primarily the process of proximity thinking to an identified person or figure in situations of perceived distress or alarm for the purpose of survival. And so Bowlby conceived of four stages uh, which was pre-attachment, attachment in the making, clear-cut attachment, and then the formation of reciprocal relationships. Ainsworth identified three types of attachment that a child could basically demonstrate, and that was secure, avoidant, and resistant, ambivalent. And so uh, Mary Mann, which was, which was her colleague, identified a fourth type also called disorganized attachment. But in, in, in Bowlby's, or Harry Harlow's experience, he, he, he raised baby monkeys away from their mothers, and he gave them surrogate mothers made of wire and wood, which sounds awful. But um, he learned a lot coming from that. And so, you know, looking at separation anxiety, a psychological condition, is when children characterized by apprehension when they're separated from a parent. People that have been abandoned or ignored or... Uh, much of their childhood, they were an insignificant in their parents' eyes, they have major attachment insecurities in life that no one will love them the way they need to be loved. They, they have a sense of even when they get the kind of love from their partner that they needed, they have a tendency to not believe it, and they back away. And these, these folks oftentimes have a hard time accepting compliments. And so that means that there's something in their attachment in their, their early life where they've had major issues. You know, it, it, what is attachment? It's, it's a strong bond toward or, or with someone's. And in attachment theory, it describes the dynamics of long-term social relationships between people. And so an attachment in infants is primarily a process of proximity, seeking with an identified person like mom or dad. And then there's the distress alarm for the purpose of understanding, hey, are you going to come and save me if I'm in danger? And that's important. In other words, infants develop attachment to their caregivers. 
and, and, and whoever they're dependent on. And as a means of survival, John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth were two researchers who really took this into heart and really looked into this development. And so, you know, the uh, Bowlby's attachment theory, he, he basically uh, uh, formed this idea that heavily influenced on ethology, which is the science study of human and animal behavior, and including an emphasis on evolutionary oranges, uh, or, origins sorry, and biological purposes of behavior. And according to Bowlby, children are biologically predisposed to develop attachment to people who take care of them as a result of genetics. And so in 69, he, he studied mother-infant interactions, including, uh, including when the infant smiles, babbles, cries, coos. These are built-in mechanisms to encourage parents to attach to and thereby care for the infant. And keeping the parent in close proximity ensures that the infant will avoid danger. And so Bowlby introduced the idea of a caregiver as a secure base for the child, and that this secure base was either successfully created during childhood or was not. I remember entering into nursery school, and I remember the first day that my mom dropped me off, I cried and cried and cried and cried and I cried so much that they had she had to come back and get me. I'm wondering if I, at that point, had some issues with attachment. Now, I was the third child, so I'm sure my mom was like, okay, this is all boring, uh, raising this kid. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sure she was phoning it in a lot. And so once again, it's interesting that that attachment didn't work, that I had to learn attachment that way. And I remember how traumatic that was, but the next day was fine. Um, you know, the development of a parent-infant attachment is really complex, leads to deeper and deeper attachment as, as a child gets older. And, and, and the attachment or the lack of it has a lifelong implications for the child as they reach into adulthood. So, you know, uh, Bowlby uh, looked at these attachment phases. Number one was the pre-attachment, birth to six weeks. And these are built-in signals such as crying, cooing, you know, uh, 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 babies recognize caretakers smell their voice. They're comforted by these things. And when the caretaker picks up the baby or smiles at them, that, that's the beginning of attachments forming. However, complete attachment hasn't yet occurred. So the baby is still comfortable being left with an unfamiliar person. And then there's attachment in the making. That's about six weeks to about eight months. And, and the attachment is getting stronger during that, that phase, but infants respond differently to familiar people than they do to strangers. For example, a five-month-old baby will be more talkative with his mother rather than with an uncle that he sees only once a month. And they'll also be calmed more quickly by their mother's presence than by the uncle's. And, and separation anxiety, becoming upset when a trusted caregiver leaves, has not set in yet, but will be seen in, in the next phase. So, you know, that's this clear-cut attachment from Bowlby's perspective. That's 8 to 18 months. And the attachment to trusted caregivers continues to strengthen. And separation anxiety is likely in a caregiver's absence. Toddlers generally want to be with their preferred caregiver at all times. And they will follow the caregiver 
climb in, climb on them, otherwise do things to keep the caregiver's attention, and parents and other important adults in the child's life continue to strengthen attachment by being receptive to the child's needs for attention, meeting basic needs, and playing with the child. And then there's the formation of reciprocal attachment, and that's about 18 months to two years. There's a whole, this is when language is formed, and it's hugely important that if you want your kid to speak multiple languages, that you give them the, the facilitation of learning new languages from, from 18 months to two years, because they can grab it. Children begin to understand a parent's coming and going. They, they can now understand that a parent returns home from work at a certain time. So the separation anxiety lessens. Although the child may do things to gain extra time with the parent prior to departure or keep the parent from leaving, parents can help a child form secure attachment by explaining things to them, by being present as much as possible, and by continuing to meet the basic needs. Now, Mary Ainsworth, she was interesting. In 1970, she, she expanded on Bowlby. And some, she came up with some more nuances of his theory. And so, uh, the, you know, the attachment theory comes to form a study known as strange situation. So in that study, Ainsworth placed children between ages one and two in unfamiliar situations to assess the type and the level of their attachment to whoever their caregiver is. And she showed that the kids use the parent as a secure base for which they explore unfamiliar room. And they become upset or uncomfortable when the parent leaves and a new individual, not known to the child, enters the room. And so she looked at different types of primary attachment as secure, as avoidant, as resistant, ambivalent. And depending on how the children attach to their parents, they would act in predictable ways to strange situation. So if they're secure with this form of attachment, uh, there's, a, there's a secure base from which to explore the room. They're comforted by the parent. And they show a clear preference for the caregiver. And so that's really important. And then there's avoidant. And these children avoid contact with the caregiver and show little interest in play. They don't seem to mind when a caregiver leaves, and they treat the stranger in, in a similar situation to the caregiver. So they may act in a rebellious manner, have lower self-esteem as they get older. And children of parents who do not meet the basic needs are more inattentive and may form more avoidant attachment. And then there's this resistant ambivalent. And children with this form attachment are unable to use uh, their parent as a secure base. So they seek out other people that will be more secure. So they're both distressed because their parent is, 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 is not a person that's safe. So they're not easily calmed by the, the parent or the stranger, they just feel anxiety with whoever is around them, and that is resistant, ambivalent attachment. And then there's this disorganized attachment that Ainsworth's uh, colleague added, and children with these attachment patterns engage in stereotypical behaviors such as freezing or rocking, they act strangely with a caregiver, they don't appear to know how to attach. Doing those type of things is approaching with their back turned hugging a stranger upon the entry of a room. Disorganized attachment generally results in a child being uh, maltreated or neglected. And that's a huge thing to understand. Now, we're getting to the big boy, Sigmund Freud. Yes, Sigmund Freud, and we're gonna do a show on Sigmund Freud next week, by the way, but his theory of psychosexual development is based on the idea that parents play a crucial role in managing their children's sexual 
and aggressive drives during the first few years of life to foster their proper development. And so he looked at a structural model that that uh, personality consists of three inner working parts, and that's the id, the ego, and the superego. And the five stages of Freud's psychosexual theory of development include oral, anal, phallic, latency, and genital stages. And according to his theory, each stage of psychosexual development must be successful for proper development. And if we lack proper nurturing and parenting during that phase, we become stuck or fixated on that stage. So it's important to understand that Freud looked at a whole lot of things and had some terminology. One of it was the conscience. Now, the conscious is a, a personification of a moral sense of right and wrong, usually in the form of a person or, or a being or merely a voice that gives moral lessons and advice. And then there's this psychosexual. Now, he was a Viennese physician, and he developed psychosexual theory development through his work and with emotionally troubled adults. And so he was considered uh, controversial, largely outdated, and it's based on the idea that parents play a crucial role in getting the, the, the sexual stages right. He believed that human personality consisted of inner working parts and according to like the id, the ego, superego. And so what were those? And it's important to understand the id is the largest part of the mind. It's related to the desires and impulses. It's the main basic sort of biological needs. The ego is related to reasoning and is conscious and it's a rational part of the personality. It monitors behavior in order to satisfy desires without suffering negative consequences. And then the superego or the conscious develops through interactions with other people who want the child to conform to the norms of society. So the superego restricts the desires of the id by applying morals, shame and guilt, values from society. And so there's a struggle between these levels of conscience influencing how a person develops. And that's what Freud believed. You know, uh, it's important to kind of understand that if we look at these levels of conscious and how a person comes about, he felt that people get stuck in these phases and, and we're all this mixture between how much id do you have, how much ego and how much superego and how are they playing on each other. That's how a person is going to form and react to life. Okay, now we're talking about Erickson, and Erickson was a big deal. Uh, he lived from like 1902 to 1994, and uh, he was very deliberate in his stages of development. And, and uh, he, he had two conflicting ideas that have to be resolved basically successfully in order for a person to become confident contributing member of society so failure to master the task leads to the feelings of inadequacy and so he had this thing that uh, for development that included trust versus mistrust and that's the first stage of life then there's autonomy versus shame and doubt then there's initiative versus guilt then there's industry versus inferiority identity versus role confusion intimacy versus isolation Generativity versus stagnation and integrity versus despair in the very end of our life. And so, you know, he, he basically took Freud's theory of psychosexual development and modified it and, and emphasized that the ego 
makes positive contributions to develop by mastering attitudes, ideas, and skills that each at each stage of these development. And, and so that mastery basically helps children grow into successful contributing members of society. And so at each stage, there's a, a social, a psychological conflict that has to be overcome in order for a child to develop healthy and well-adjusted. And so um, it's really important to study this. And, and Erickson also added to Freud's stages by discussing the cultural implications of development. So certain cultures may need to resolve the stages in different ways based on their values and their survival needs. So let's look at trust versus mistrust. Trust versus mistrust, that's a birth to about 12 months old. And infants, they basically need to learn that adults can be trusted. And this occurs when adults meet a child's basic needs for survival. And so infants are dependent upon their caregivers. So caregivers who are responsive and sensitive to the infant's needs help their baby develop a sense of trust. So their baby will see the world as a safe place, a predictable place, Unresponsive caregivers who do not meet their baby's needs can in, in, engender feelings of anxiety and fear and mistrust. So their baby may see the world as unpredictable. So guess what we have? People, kids that grow up with, with all kinds of weird things like paranoia and fear and, and introvertedness because they did not get that sense of safety. Big deal. This is a big deal. And if infants are treated cruelly or their needs are not met, they will likely grow up with a sense of mistrust for people in the world. That's a huge, important point to understand. Then there's from about one to three. Now, these are toddlers, and they basically look at autonomy versus shame and doubt. And so they explore their world. They, they learn that they can control their actions and act upon their environment to get results. So they begin to show clear preferences for certain elements of the environment, such as food, toys, clothing. And so when they look at that, their main task is to resolve the issue of autonomy versus shame and doubt by working to establish independence. And this is a me-do-it stage. For example, we might observe a, a budding sense of autonomy in a two-year-old child who wants to choose their clothes, dress themselves, although their outfits might not be appropriate for the situation. Their input is a basic uh, decisions that have an effect on their sense of independence. And that's important. If denied the opportunity to act on their environment, they may begin to doubt their abilities, which could lead to low self-esteem, feelings of shame, and a lack of initiative. That's what we want to have. And if you don't resolve that stage, it's going to be almost impossible to get into initiative versus guilt. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back. your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. 
Do you wish you could avoid having difficult conversations with your kids about sex, relationships, and how to stay safe? Do you struggle with what and how much to say? You're not alone. Tune into Holistic Sex Ed Radio with host Robin LaCrosse for a fresh new perspective on sex education that goes beyond the birds and the bees. We gather together every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for conversations designed to improve your relationships, expand your knowledge, and give you the tools to help your kids make the most out of their lives. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, Please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. All right, we're talking about developmental theory and the people that get stuck in these in these stages. We're right now, you know, we just left autonomy versus shame and doubt, which is um, one to three years old. And, and basically, this is when children learn that they can control their actions and it can act on the environment and get and have an effect on it. But then there's this next phase, which is so important. It's initiative versus guilt. And once children reach preschool age of about three to six years, they're capable of initiating activities and asserting control over their world through social interactions and play. So according to Erickson, preschool children must resolve the task of initiative versus guilt by learning to plan and achieve goals while interacting with others. Preschool children can basically master the task. So the initiative is a sense of ambition and responsibility, and it occurs when parents allow a child to explore their limits and then support the child's choice. And so these children will develop self-confidence. They feel a sense of purpose. They're also, if they're unsuccessful in this phase, with their initiative misfiring, stifled, over-controlling parents, uh, they develop feelings of guilt and shame. And it's sadly, these kids have trouble in life taking initiative because their parents are too controlling and have too high of expectations and won't allow the child to interact. If, if they just were supportive and kind instead of critical, that would be a great thing because they would have a child who would have more motivation be more uh, on their own, be able to initiate things on their own and live a life and grow up uh, living a fairly productive life. Unfortunately, people are control freaks, they're overzealous, they're overprotective, and they prevent their children from taking initiative, and then they have trouble in school, then they have trouble completing tasks, and they have trouble doing homework, then they have trouble doing their chores. And it's unfortunate, it's a byproduct of bad parenting not understanding this phase of life. And then they move from about 6 to 12 into elementary school. And basically, they face the task of industry versus inferiority. And children begin to compare themselves with their peers and see how they measure up. And they either develop a sense of pride 
an accomplishment in their schoolwork and their sports and their social activities, their family life, or they feel inferior and inadequate because they feel they don't measure up. And if children do not learn to get along with others or have negative experience at home or with peers, an inferiority complex uh, might develop into adolescence and adulthood. Children, when they go through uh, parents divorcing at this age, have a very difficult time because they're embarrassed by what's happening if their home life is being torn apart. They lose their initiative to define their role in life. They lose their initiative to socialize properly because they feel like they're living a secret. And they basically are confused about what their future is going to hold because when parents divorce, usually the income gets cut in half. And they don't live the way they would have lived had their parents worked on their marriage, been adults, and and tried to make it work instead of going go into it for selfish reasons. You know, a lot of people are breeding stock. Some people are good parents, but there is tons of breeding stock out there in this world. And you may have one parent that's a good parent and the other that's not. If you are, you're lucky. If you have two parents that are good parents you're very fortunate and you need to value that. You know, let's look at identity versus role confusion. And this is about 12 to 18. And they basically face the task of identity and role confusion in life. Uh, According to Erickson, an adolescent's main task is developing a sense of self. And so adolescents struggle with questions like, who am I? What do I want to do with my life? Along the way, Most adolescents try on many selves to see which one fits. So they explore various roles and ideas. They set goals. They attempt to discover their adult selves. And so adolescents who are successful in this stage have a really strong sense of identity. They're able to remain true to their beliefs and values in face of problems and other people's perspectives. So when adolescents are apathetic, they do not make a conscious search for identity. And they're pressured to conform to their parents' ideas of the future, so they develop a weak sense of self and experience role confusion. So they will be unsure of their identity, confused about the future. So teenagers who struggle to adopt positive role model, you know, positive role in life, will struggle to find themselves as adults. And it's normal for them to explore. Just because they're exploring something that you as a parent don't approve of. You know, it's it's right to feel a sense of of, of uh, they're in danger and stuff like that, and to have your concerns. But it's also important for you to not think that they're just going to become a pothead just because they started smoking pot with a friend. Maybe they're just exploring, and hopefully they don't get stuck with that. And that's a very important thing to do. Then there's this huge thing: it's intimacy versus isolation, and so people. In a early early adulthood, 20s through 40s, they're concerned with intimacy and isolation. And after we developed a sense of self in adolescence, we're ready to share our life with other people. However, in other stages, they've not been successfully resolved. Young adults may have trouble developing and maintaining uh, successful relationships with other people. So Erickson basically said that we have must have a strong sense of self before we can develop successful intimate relationships. Adults who do not develop a positive self-concept in adolescence may experience feelings of loneliness and emotional isolation and then pick partners that don't really fit who they are. And it's sad, but a lot of people marry out of loneliness. They, they, they marry not the person that they're, they need to match up with, 
and you need to take time to do that. But a lot of, some people marry very young because they they feel like they're alone in the world and lonely and scared and they have no direction. And so they'll latch on to somebody, marry them, and then develop through their marriage, uh, develop themselves as a person and basically grow up. And as they grow up in their marriage, they tend to find later on many times that they don't match up well, that they made a bad choice when they're younger, but they have to understand they made a choice out of desperateness, not a choice in, in, uh, of a partner in which they fell in love with. And that can be a very difficult thing to face uh, through your young life. And then there's generativity versus stagnation. And when people reach about 40, they enter the time known as middle adulthood, which, which extends to about mid-60s. And that task of middle adulthood is, is, once again, generativity versus stagnation. So generativity basically involves finding your life's work and contributing to the development of others through activities such as volunteering, mentoring, raising children. And, and during this phase, middle-aged adults begin contributing to the next generation through childbirth, caring for others. They also engage in meaningful and productive work which also contributes positively to society. Those who don't master this task may experience stagnation, feel as though they're not leaving a mark on the world in a meaningful way, and they may have little connection to other people and little interest in productivity and self-improvement. So they stagnate. They just stagnate and they go through life in an obligatory way, raising the kids, being married, but everything is blah, vanilla, apathetic. They have a very low uh, emotional IQ, have little engagement and really um, little purpose. And some people just give up on life and just go this way. And it's sad, but we all need to have understand that we're souls living a human life. And that means you have a soul and a purpose, you have a connection beyond you, and this is when you begin to take the hard things that you've done in life and apply it to the next generation and to people around you to help make their life better. And that is important. And whether it's a plumber, whether it's an electrician, whether it's a doctor, whatever it is, your passion, you need to do something hard in life so that people will seek you out for what you know. And then in the last phase, and that's from the mid-60s to the end of life, it's integrity versus despair. We're in a period of development known as late adulthood. Erickson basically uh, is, is, is looking at this, and, and he said that people in the late adulthood reflect on their lives, feel either a sense of satisfaction or a sense of failure. And so people who feel proud of their accomplishments feel a sense of integrity. They can look back at their lives with a few regrets. However, people who are not successful at this stage may feel as if their life has been wasted. So they focus on what would have, what should have, what could have been. So they face the end of their lives with feelings of bitterness, depression, and despair. And that, my friends, is an overview of Erickson. Now we look at Lawrence Kohlberg. And he expanded on the earlier work of cognitive theorist John Piget that we covered earlier. And so he looked at the moral development uh, of children and explaining that. And he defined moral development as pre-conventional, conventional, and post-conventional. And then each of those levels has a breakdown of um, two distinct stages. So during, during uh, pre-conventional, uh, a child's basic sense of morality is externally controlled. So children accept and believe the rules of authority figures, such as parents and teachers and judges. They, they act and based on the consequences. 
And during the conventional level, an individual's sense of morality is tied to personal and social societal relationships. So children continue to accept the rules of authority figures, but this is now because they believe that this is a necessary to ensure positive relationships and societal order. And then during the post-conventional level, a person's sense of morality is defined in terms of more abstract principles and values. So people now believe that some laws are unjust and, and should be changed and be eliminated. And so Kohlberg's theory uh, basically was criticized for its cultural and gender-based bias towards white upper-class men and boys, and it also fails to account for inconsistency within moral judgments. So this theory is probably the most uh, speculative of all the other theories we've talked about. But, um, you know, after presenting people with various moral dilemmas, uh, Kohlberg basically reviewed people's responses and placed them in different stages of moral reasoning, which is kind of like judging people. Um, and so let's look at that. In level one, the pre-conventional, throughout the pre-conventional level, a child's sense of morality is externally controlled. And so children accept and believe the rules of authority figures, such as parents, teachers. And so a child, child with pre-conventional morality has not yet adopted or internalized society's conventions regarding what is right or wrong. But instead, they focus largely on external consequences that certain actions will probably bring. So in stage one is obedience and punishment orientation. So this basically focuses on the child's desire to, to obey rules, avoid being punished. For example, an action is perceived as morally wrong because the perpetrator is punished. So the worst punishment of the act is the more bad the act is perceived to be. And then we looked at the instrumental orientation and that's what's in it for me. And which the right behavior is defined by whatever the individual believes to be their best interest. So stage two reasoning shows a limited interest in the needs of others only to the point where it might further an individual's own interest. And as a result, the concern for others is not based on loyalty and intrusive respect, but rather you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And so an example of this would be like when a child is asked by their parents to do a chore, the child asks, you know, what, what's in it for me? And the parents offer the child an incentive by giving him an allowance. And so there's also a level two of stage two. And so throughout this conventional level, a child's sense of morality is tied to personal and societal relationships. So children continue to accept the rules of authority figures, but this is now due to their belief that it's necessary to ensure positive relationships and societal order. So adherence to rules and conventions is somewhat rigid during this stage. And then there's the uh, good boy, nice girl orientation. And that's when children want the approval of others. They act in ways to avoid disapproval. So emphasis is placed on good behavior and people being nice to other people. And then there's the law and order orientation. And that's stage four. The child blindly accepts rules and convention because their importance in maintaining a functional society. The rules are seen as being the same for everyone, and obeying the rules by doing what one is supposed to do is seen as valuable and important. All right, that's enough of Kohlberg. We're going to take another, uh, we're not going to take another break. We're going to end the show here. But I want to say I thank you, everyone, for listening. I'd love to hear from you. You can do that at voiceamerica.com, the empowerment channel, Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Now, remember, 
If you think you're too small to be effective, you've never been in the dark with a mosquito. <laughs> that came from Betty Reese. I'll say. All right, now, what's a mantrum? A childish rage filled with a temper tantrum a man uses to get his way. Also, remember, try throwing fertilizer at people who need to grow up. If we could only taste our words before we spit them out, that would be a great thing. Thank you, everybody, for listening. That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. 